All right. Welcome, everyone. Um, I just thought we might start with, hopefully those who were at Farm Church last week will remember we did, what do we call it? Discovery Bible Study. We walked through a passage. In step one, we broke into groups, and step one was we someone read it out. In step two, someone else had to memorise the key points, which was a bit of a challenge. So I thought, we'll see who was listening and who can remember what we talked about last week. Can you take us? Transfiguration. Transfiguration, yeah. <laughs> we'll wait for you, hey? <laughs> Alright, so they walked up a mountain. Who walked up the mountain? Yeah, and Jesus. Alright, good work. Peter, James, John, and Jesus walked up a mountain. What happened when they got to the top? <laughs> Jesus was transfigured. Jesus was transfigured. Thank you, Graham. Someone was paying attention. His robes were bright, brighter than anyone could bleach them, it said. What else happened? Uh, Moses and Elijah appeared. Yeah, Moses and Elijah appeared. Was there a cloud? Something? Yes. A voice spoke from the cloud. What did it say? Son, who I am pleased. I'm going to take your word for it. And then what happened? Peter said a dumb thing. Peter said <laughs> Sounds like Peter. <laughs> but they wanted to build them some houses, right? Build, your, build a shelter for each of them. Yeah. Then, yeah. then the cloud disappeared. And so did Moses and Elijah. And then what happened? Jesus told them not to tell anybody. Yeah. Until... Yeah, don't tell anyone until I've risen again. And then they make their way back down the mountain. And that's where we take off. So I just thought we'd recap that because this one, this, this verse that we're reading starts with when they came to the other disciples, they saw a loud crowd around them and there were teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. So this is the context of just... A few of them have been up the mountain while the rest of them stayed at the bottom. They've just come back down and there's a big argument going on and a big crowd there. To which a man replies, I brought you my son. He brought his son, but Jesus wasn't there. And he, you know, he saw a crowd of disciples these, and assumed that Jesus would be there. And it was a pretty reasonable assumption. Wherever these weird Jesus followers meet, usually you find Jesus too. Um, and also, the, you know, the teachers of law were on the lookout for them. They were always keen to either hear what Jesus had to say openly or, more likely, try and trap him and use his words against him. So it was a reasonable assumption that this man would bring his son to Jesus, but he didn't have any luck. He says, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. So one of those weird passages. Um, I'm, I'm no expert in demons, but if we're going to take scripture seriously, we're, we're kind of forced to concede that demons boast that they do exist and that they also possess some degree of power and influence over the world, at least at this point in history. Some people argue that they're not around today. I don't tend to think so, but it's another conversation. Um, some, oh, sorry. To avoid a very strange kind of study, we're not going to go into it because I don't think that's the key point of this passage here. 
other than to sum up that demons do exist, have seem to have malicious intentions towards God and humanity. However, they do operate under God's sovereign rule. They are not equal to God, and ultimately, Jesus has already defeated them. And you know, in the Gospels and Acts, we see all these reports of healings and driving out spirits and demons, and you know, there's lots of discussions about demons. You know, these days we discuss in the ancient world if they didn't know what the problem was, you call it a demon. Again, I don't think that was the case. Um, Jesus makes clear distinctions between physical problems and spiritual ones. Um, he's, he's attributed things to you know physical damage and healing, and other times he specifies specifically there's a spirit or a demon that's responsible for it. So all that's to say, you know, we shouldn't necessarily attribute everything to a physical problem, but we also shouldn't attribute everything to a demon or a spiritual problem either. I don't know where that line is, but somewhere in there. Um, I remember a good sermon actually from Tim Keller. It was slightly related, but it was, it was talking about depression. And he, and he pointed out the, the problem we have as Christians, particularly as you know, church and from a pastoral care perspective, um, that we run into trouble when we oversimplify depression or the cause of depression you know and he said you know often our go-to is that we tell someone they, they just need to talk to god more and work on their you know their spiritual life and that will solve the problem get your spiritual life in order but someone might have a you know a problem like a physical injury or a thyroid problem which causes chemical imbalances you know, then we're burdening them with saying the problem is spiritual when it's actually physical equally you know if someone is depressed because they're being convicted of unrepented sin that they won't address you know their conscience is beating down on them if we prescribe medication to that someone without addressing that spiritual problem, we're not really helping the cause. And again, if someone's suffering depression after a traumatic event or loss of a loved one, and we either prescribe medication or tell them to you know, pray to God more, but we don't practically support them with fellowship and talking and allowing them to process these things, we're not, again, we're not helping the problem. So there's a whole number of things why someone might be depressed or, or have any, any number of problems, and it's really complicated to pastorally address these things. We can't have a one-size-fits-all approach. You know, to, to say to someone, you know, confess your sin to someone who's in mourning, that's a brutal thing to do. You know? to, to pray for healing for someone who's actually just lonely and needs fellowship, that's not going to tick the box either. You know? And to, offer, you know, to surround someone with connection and fellowship, that's a great thing, but if that person has a physical injury or... And balance, that's not going to solve that problem either. Um, so all of that is to just say that I don't have the answers. Um, humans are complicated. And the Bible does sometimes attribute demons or spirits as the cause of physical problems. And sometimes it is just physical problems. So we need to be careful and careful that we don't cause more harm when trying to help people. So again, he says, you know, I, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Um, so back in chapter 6 of Mark, Jesus began to send the disciples out two by two, and he gave them, it says that he gave them authority over impure spirits. We read in Mark chapter 6, verse 12, that they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And then in Luke chapter 10, 17, we read of another event where Jesus sends out 72. So I didn't realize it's not just the, you know, the 12 named disciples that we, that we follow most of the time, but a bigger group than that. He sends these guys out, and they returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So, so this isn't something new to them to you know, pray for healing and drive out demons. They've had success in the past, and they've driven out many demons before. But for some reason, it says this time that they couldn't do it. 
So this passage started with Jesus coming down the mountain and approaching the crowd and the teachers of the law, and he asks, what are you arguing about? And it doesn't specify exactly what they're arguing about. The next response is the father who says, I brought my son here. Um, So we can assume it was something to do with that. You know, the the disciples and these followers of Jesus have built up quite a reputation for, for healings and deliverance. And, you know, we know that crowds in the thousands gathered to hear him. So much that, you know, even King Herod heard about him and the, the wonderful things that were going on. And this was much to the disgust of the religious leaders. So you can imagine these teachers of the law at this point, you know, really enjoying this moment. You know, they can finally say to the crowd, you know, these guys, they're fakers, they're con men, God's not with them. Look, there's no power here. They would have been really enjoying it. So the disciples couldn't help, and Jesus turns up to see what all the fuss is about. And he hears that the disciples were unable to drive out the demon. He replies and says, You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And in both Matthew and Luke have, have their, their version of this account. And, and the wording is quite slightly different. It says, faithless and twisted generation. So faithless, an obvious one, you know, doubting, not trusting. And twisted is, is meaning to be you know, turned away from the right path. So, and it's unclear whether he's addressing the whole crowd where he says, you faithless generation, or whether he's particularly meaning the father or the disciples. You know, he's, he's saying, you're twisted off the path. You had the right idea, but your thinking isn't quite right. So he could be talking to the father and saying, you know, you're putting faith in the disciples or in humans to heal. That's not quite right. He could be calling out those sceptical teachers of the law, you know, the religious elites who are trying to put God in a box. Or he could, I I think this is the one that makes most sense to me and the explanation comes later. I think that he's speaking specifically to the disciples, that they're getting overconfident, believing in their own ability and not relying on the power of God. And we'll see that in in a little while. So they brought him. So they brought him. They brought the boy to Jesus. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, "How long has he been like this?" "From childhood," he answered. "It has often thrown him into fire and water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us." This sort of hit me more than it normally would. Normally I just sort of skim over these kind of passages and it's, you know, it's a weird account, don't really know what's going on, move on. Um, but you know, what's, what's unpacked here? This is horrible. You know, it's, it's not just his boy. It's, it's been happening since childhood, it says. Um, you know, that's pretty messed up. I, I can't help, you know, it's very easy to put yourself in those shoes and feel that desperation of the father who's, who's witnessing this with his kid. Um, and again, there's lots of different opinions about demons and their abilities and structure and all that sort of stuff. And some commentators suggest that this spirit is intent on killing this child, but perhaps it's bound by some kind of limitations that it can't kill directly, whether that's God's sovereign plan that he, he won't allow that to happen, or whether he's just physically limited in those abilities. And you know, Limited in his ability only to seize the body, to go rigid and throw him to the ground. But from what the father said, that the spirit seems like he's being intentional and opportunistic about when he decides to do it. He's, you know, he's waiting for the child to be extra vulnerable near fire or near water. 
So this father had been living with that pain of watching his son suffering for years with this. His demon had thrown him into fire, tried to drown him in the water. You know, he's, he's probably scarred with you know, burns on his body, bruised from repeated falls. This is a physical body suffering in pain. Obviously the father would have prayed to God for years with the, about this to have no answer. And his torment continued on and on. This is a father who's in agony over his child's situation. You know, no doubt he was exhausted physically and mentally. And, and when we are in that situation, it's, it's, you know, it's an impossible circumstance. We see no end to it. Our faith can become weak in those situations. And when we're weak, we begin to doubt God and doubt our own beliefs and what we know to be true. But when this man encountered Jesus face, face to face, he still had faith to ask for help one more time. He's tried with his disciples. It's fallen through. He's probably demoralized at that point. Yet he's trying again with Jesus. He says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. There's an awesome quote here that I want to read out from Charles Spurgeon. He unpacks this nicely, but unfortunately he's from 1800s England, so excuse a few vowels and weird language. But what he says is, now, now there was an if in the question. But the poor trembling father had put the if in the wrong place. Jesus Christ, therefore, without telling him to retract the if, just puts it in its legitimate position. Nay, verily, he seemed to say. No, truly, he seemed to say. There should be no if about my power, nor about my willingness. The if lies somewhere else. If thou thou canst believe, if, if you can believe... All things are possible to him that believeth. Translation for the old 1800s in there. You know, he, he's saying there, the if is in the wrong place. It's not a question of my power or my willingness. And Jesus' response is quite a weird, like he's, he's solid and absolute in his response, but he's compassionate as well. He's, he's not chastising this guy. He's not, not telling him, well, he's telling him he's wrong. He's absolute about that, but he's not slamming him for it. He's not dismissing him. He's just gently correcting him. And in Psalm 103, we read, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. He knows we're human. He knows we're weak. He knows that we have doubts. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. This man offers a humble prayer of faith to increase his faith. And when we come to Christ with our doubts, you know, he, he can handle it. That's, that's not a shock to him. He didn't chastise this hurting father, or he didn't shut him down. You know, Jesus recognised that the man had faith enough to come and find him. And then even after the, faith, the failed attempt with his disciples, had faith to ask again, and faith to ask for his faith to be increased. It takes faith to recognise when we are weak in faith. And again, Charles Spurgeon, in his great wisdom, says this great line, Help my unbelief. This is something that a man can only say by faith. While men have no faith, they are unconscious of their unbelief. But as soon as they get a little faith, they begin to be conscious of the greatness of their unbelief. It's quite encouraging, right? That's good news. That you know, if you're aware of your doubts and your unbelief, if you feel like your your faith is hanging on by a thread, that means you do in fact have faith. 
And you know, all, all Christians have a saving faith, but it's it's not constant. You know, it waxes and wanes. You know, my belief isn't perfect. Mixed in with my belief is patches of unbelief. You know, it's it's not pure belief. Help me with my unbelief is a legitimate prayer for a believer. And again, John MacArthur commenting on this, unpacks it nicely as well. He says that we have a sufficient faith because it is given to us by God and God designs it to be sufficient. Perfect? No. Imperfect? Yes. Weak? Yes. Vacillating? Yes. Wavering? Yes. Doubting? Yes. But sufficient? Yes. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I look at some Christians that seem to have this you know, 100% faith, never doubt anything, absolute certainty, and that's, I don't want to mock that, that's, that's an awesome thing. But sometimes it feels unobtainable, unrealistic. And I think the good news is that that's not necessary. You, know. you need to have more reason to trust God than not to trust him. You know, we need to think that life makes more sense assuming that God is real than him not being real. And we need to continue to grow in our understanding of God to learn more about him and the things that build our faith. But you don't actually need to have answers for everything. Um, obviously, it's very helpful to have good reasons why you believe what you to do, what, what you do believe, and to avoid being swayed by culture. But it's not necessary to squash every single doubt. I have a couple of sort of sceptical friends that that always ask you difficult questions, and then eventually, of course, they'll find one that you can't answer because I don't know about you guys, but I'm not actually a genius and I don't know everything. But, you know, you, you you have good responses for 99 answers, and then one that you can't respond to. And they, they see that as a good reason to throw away your faith because there's a hole in it. You know, they have a very high bar for this, but a lower bar for literally everything else. You know, very little understanding of, you know, I have no idea how my car works. Well, I have this much idea how my car works. Um, you know, on my computer, I arrived this morning, turned on my computer. I assume when I press that button, it's going to turn on and work. I don't know what happens behind the scenes, you know. I know nothing about magnets and electronics and all that sort of stuff. And it says in Hebrews 1 it says faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see you know I assume, my, my hope was in pushing that button and I, knew, I assumed what would follow I was actually I was surprised a, a while ago I was talking to a couple of friends who are electricians and they said something that I haven't forgotten and it's they said that there's still no good ex- explanation for the understanding of electricity you know, they said, we've studied it, we've got repeatable experiments, we reliably know when we do X, Y, Z that you know, the light will turn on or this will happen. We've got lots of safety warnings about what not to do from repeatable things. You know that this will go bad if you do this. And, and we're certain that electricity exists, but no one seems to fully comprehend it. You know, and if, yeah, if you want to go down this rabbit hole, jump onto Google and, and just search, do we know how electricity works? Or is electricity fully understood? And I don't know, just enjoy that. I, I couldn't help but sort of smile that, you know, some of the explanations are that it's mysterious and, you know, I just thought, we're confident electricity exists, right? Yeah. But the, the deeper understanding of... Oh, I just thought it was incredible. Anyway. All we need is a better reason to believe than to disbelieve. We don't need all the answers and we don't need to respond to every little thing. We are not expected to have a perfect, undoubting faith. What little faith we are given is sufficient.
And when Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. The father asked for help with his unbelief. I reckon this probably would have helped with that unbelief, don't you? Again, that idea that back then they didn't know what the problem was, so we attribute it to a demon. I, you know, people often point to epilepsy or something like that. Doesn't work, right? Like a, a shrieking falls over dead simply from talking to him. I don't think so. There is a, you know, the, the father's faith would have increased after this. There's a relationship between faith and trust, you know, and usually it takes a while for us to trust someone you know, to have faith in them. One thing that builds trust is when they do what they say they were going to do. For the disciples and those who were around Jesus when he was walking on the earth, they see all these incredible things, and they had all this first-hand evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. It's interesting that you can see the shift you know, in the later half of the book of Acts, and in pretty much all the letters to the churches, that, that the arguments for believing in Jesus and believing in God actually shifts. You know, Obviously, after Jesus ascended, they couldn't just say, Come look at this Jesus guy. He'll be here on Tuesday. You know, they shift to pointing out. You know, look at what people were talking about thousands of years ago. Look at what God promised, and now think about everything that you heard about that Jesus guy. You know, the, the weight moves from miracles and Jesus around the corner to God fulfilling promises. You know, it, it shifts to, to proving that God has shown Himself as trustworthy. You know, they say, you know, see for yourself, study it. That, that's that's the case that they present. Read the Bible from the perspective of God fulfilling his promises. And time and time again, we see that he is faithful. And we see so much fulfilled in Jesus. Even when we can see that he's got good justification not to fulfill those promises. So yeah, God might not you know, always work in our timing. And he doesn't promise everything. But the things that he does promise, we can trust him with. For me, my faith is strongest when I'm digging into the Bible and reminded of these these bigger promises that God has kept and those that we're still waiting for. And by focusing on those promises and getting revelation about you know who God is and how He's trustworthy, that's that's more encouraging for me rather than focusing on what's going on in my life or in the world and you know all these horrible things that are legitimate and horrible, but then they're nothing in the the big picture. Um, I don't know if any of you guys keep like prayer journals, that sort of thing. I don't, but I've heard that they're, they're very useful for, again, looking back on something that was a big deal a year ago and seeing how God's come through and helped with that. A good way of, you know, evidence of God being faithful in your life. And, and lastly, this passage ends with a couple of lines that seems like it's, you know, it's been included to help clarify things and wrap it up, but I think it just adds to the confusion. Um, it says, after, after all this crazy stuff has happened, you know, after, Jesus, after that, Jesus had gone indoors. His disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. And there's no follow-up questions and no extra stuff included. That, that's all we're given. He, he says, this kind, he says. Um, he seems to imply that there are other kinds to the ones that they previously encountered, perhaps. This kind can only come out by prayer. And prayer is calling on the power of God. You will never be able to command these on your own. This was an important lesson for the disciples. 
at this point in history, you know, Jesus and his disciples are moving back towards Jerusalem, where he's going to die, obviously. Sorry, spoilers. But he, you know, he's hinting at that with his disciples that he, he's, they don't quite pick it up yet, as we see. But he's, he's telling them, you know, I'm, I'm trying to prepare you for a time when you're, I won't be here with you. You know, you're, you're going to have to learn to do things on your own. And this is what we'll see a little bit more going forward. But you know, he's telling them here not to forget it, but where the power comes from, that it comes from God, not them. To say that this kind can only come out by prayer is just like saying, you know, you can't do this on your own. You need to get in contact with God, which will be a very important lesson, you know, going from that shift of having Jesus right next to them to saying, you guys are on your own. I'm not, you're not on your own, but I'm not going to be right next door to talk to. Um, I found a great quote from a pastor, which I didn't actually write the name, the name down, but he, he mentioned, he said, no one could reproach me for not having worked hard enough but they could readily reproach me for not having prayed enough. And I think, you know, that's quite a... It's, it's sort of an honest admittance of... I don't know about you guys, but what, what I can definitely identify with. You know, that for most of us, prayer is harder than a lot of the work that we do. Jesus is saying to us and to his disciples that if we want to do those really important and difficult things that he desires us to do, we must pray more. And just to summarise, you know, I think there's two key takeaways from this passage. The, the first of all, that you know, our imperfect faith is sufficient. Um, you know, the, the father in that story was challenged by Jesus, you know, question of his faith. He did believe in Jesus, and he did, did believe Jesus had power to deliver his child. You know, after all, why else would he have travelled all that way and, and come to find him? But he also recognises his own doubts, so he pleaded with Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And in this case, the man's unbelief was not, it wasn't rebellion against God or a rejection of God's promises. You know, he, he wasn't denying God's promises. He, he really desired it. It just seemed too good to be true. Therefore, he says, help my unbelief, which I think we can definitely relate to and I find encouraging that that doesn't scare God and that that is a sign of, you know, to admit unbelief is a sign of, of faith. And I think tied to this, you know, our, our faith is given to us by God. You know, it's an imperfect faith designed by God, knowing that we are human and that we will doubt and waver. The solution to this imperfect faith is to combine it with communication with the one who is perfect. You know, he's making this clear to his disciples and the importance of prayer. You know, you can't do this on your own, but we can do anything in God's strength. All right, let's pray. Lord, help us with our unbelief. Help us with the things that we doubt and the things that, that we find too good to be true. I ask that you grow us in our faith and our understanding of you and your promises. That we're to be encouraged by what we see. And remind us that we can't do this on our own. Remind us to constantly communicate and talk with you to surrender all these difficult things to you. Amen. Thank <clears throat> you.